This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine back to another edition of Wireless Books by the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, New, Z- New Zealand's Dunedin's library, complementary to the a public library, but at a different location and rather older. Mm, much older. Now welcome back to you, Beth. Oh, it's so n- nice to have you almost restored to, to health. Oh, wow. Your voice has still got that uh, a throaty quality to it. Oh. Come up and see me sometime. Yes, you could um, be doing voiceover for chocolate ads. Or RuPaul. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's lovely to have you back. It was quite a strain um, two weeks ago. I bet Um, you loved it. I thought I would, but actually, no, it's very hard to keep yabbering away to yourself. (laughs) So instead, it's quite easy to yabber away to me. Well, you interrupt and um, get me off track, you see, so it's... Oh, bold dash. Bold dash. I'm very excited you've been to the Regent Book Sale. Yes, it actually was a, it was a very hot day, but I I was a bit tinny and got a, a park with shade, which was nice. Mm. And uh, yes, I was actually worried about doing it because Jackie um, always used to love it and she... She was very good at keeping me on track and um, keeping me going. And I thought, oh, will I be able to coach a smile myself? Because it's always such an unpleasant thing. I think it's because we used to have to queue before we got in and then you'd have to rush to get to the box. And, you know, you're going downstairs then up onto the stage and then down the stairs to the... And it's just such a a trek. Whereas at the Echo Centre, well, it was a trek to get to the entrance. (laughs) But once you got there, it's all set out and it's all nice and flat. And because there's so much space... There was much more room. There, there weren't people jostling y- past. Yes. Yeah, because the aisles were, well, they had to be really narrow mm. when they had them at the Regent Theatre. So, yeah, no, that would have been good. No, it was excellent. And um, I was actually um, talking to someone else and she she said that she her daughter had um, something like netball or something at the Eggers Centre. And so she thought, oh, well, I'll just, just pop on and have a quick look, see what, how it's going. And she, she had a good poke around and she actually, I stuck to the box, but she actually, because she was just doing it for herself, she wandered down and there's all this other stuff that they were selling. And she, she found these whiskey decan, um, yeah, a set of six whiskey crystal whiskey decanter not decanters uh, tumblers okay. and um, they were remarkably cheap and she sort of ummed and ahed and then she decided oh no and then and she's been kicking herself ever since <laughs> <laughs> yep that's the thing if, if you see something you've just you know, you've got to buy it now before we get into the books or some of the books that I brought at the region I just want to do one little thing from my holiday reading, and I got this book out called Bad Days in History, a gleefully grim chronicle of misfortune, mayhem, and misery for every day of the year. See what sort of person I am. And it's by Michael Fakwa. And 
there's just one thing in it that I really wanted to share because it's one of the most bizarre incidents and I have heard I heard it on something like QI. It's one of those sort of trivia things, but it's actually horrific and very tragic. And it's um it happened in Boston and in the North End, um, a company had uh, of this huge tower full of molasses, and on July the fifteenth, nineteen ninety, residents and workers in Boston's North North End, bursting in their regular routines, about twelve thirty, heard a loud ram- rumbling like overhead an overhead train, and it was accompanied by what sounded like the rat-a-tat-tat of machine gun fire, which was actually the popping of rivets. The noise came from a massive storage tank that had loomed over the neighbourhood for three years and contained more than two million gallons of raw molasses, and it was breaking apart. Mm. Now, the tank's collapse sent a massive wave of molasses about 8 to 15 feet high. I mean... Anything coming at you that high, there's no way that you could escape it. And it was, and it's significantly heavier than seawater. And it was hurtling through the surrounding streets at 35 miles an hour, which is rather fast. There's no way that a person could run, run the molasses. No, so you were going to be engulfed by it. And ugh. so railroad cars were lifted from their tracks. That's how powerful it was. Buildings were knocked off their foundations and crushed. People in the path of the relentless brown swell never stood a chance. So in total, 21 people perished. Some were not uncovered from the viscous mass for days, and another 150 were injured. Now, that's actually an incredible... I think it's amazing that only 21 people yeah. died. But was that in 1990, you said, not 1890? Sorry, no, 1990. So they actually have a picture here, and I'll, I'll just quickly show it to you, Beth. It's just the whole place is flattened. Yeah. Um, it's black and white, which is probably just as well. So um, the first sight that greeted the first of the rescuers was almost indescribable in words, uh, a, a reporter said. And molasses was waist deep, covering the street, and swirled and bubbled around the wreckage. Here and there struggling, struggled to form. Whether it was animal or human being was impossible to tell. So only an upheaval, a thrashing about in a sticky mess, showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. Because, of course, back then they still would have had horses for doing deliveries. So In no, 1990? Yeah, yeah. Because that's... But, yeah, the cars only really started to take over in the 1920s. Oh, hang on. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm obviously still blocked up. I'm saying, was that 1990? No, 1919. Oh, one, 1919. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One year after right. the First World War. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, as the, and the that more... That makes more sense. The more you struggled, the deeper yeah. into the mess you became ensnared. And the owner of the tank, the United States Industrial Alcohol, tried to disclaim responsibility for the disaster, blaming it instead on an anarchist bomb. I mean, there were a lot of anarchists around in the 1990s. 1990s. You've got me started now. 
But after years of investigation, the company was found to be negligent in both the construction and maintenance of the tank and was forced to pay a hefty settlement to the survivors, thank goodness. And the site of the disaster has long since been transformed into a park, but people swear on a warm day the sweet smell of molasses still wafts through the air. So that's something that's talked about, but it's kind of as a joke thing, but when you actually hear the details of it... Reminds me of that uh, book we used to read in the primers in primary school, Sweet Porridge, I think it was, with the porridge... Oh, I've never heard that I think one. it was, uh, with the porridge all bubbled over the pot and went out of the house and down the... Mm. Right. Mm. <laughs> what a life of mm. its own. <laughs> anyway, on to the books. Mm. So this first one is a spy book. It's called Box 88 by Charles Cumming. And Box 88 is actually a secret spy agency. And it was set up... I don't know if it's true or not, but according to the book, it was set up in 1989, which when the Cold War is sort of coming to an end, Mm. but there's still threats around. And it's a joint Anglo-American thing. And and a man, uh, what's his name? Um, Lachlan Kite. And he's been recruited from an elite boarding school and sent to France tasked with gathering intelligence on an enigmatic Iranian businessman implicated in the Lockerbie bombing. And so it goes on. And it actually opens with a very short chapter with an American family who've been to Britain and they've been Christmas shopping and they're heading back home three days before Christmas. And they actually on that fatal flight. It's really sad. So it's a very gripping beginning. And then we move on to the spies. Now, in 2020, MI5 has heard rumours of Box 88's existence and they're trying to work out if it's true or not. Because it was so secret that MI5 and MI6 supposedly know nothing of it. And so that they are trailing Kite to try and find out if he's who he is. And, and they're really coming up with nothing. But the next thing, he's kidnapped by Iranian intelligence who um, talk to him and want to know what happened in France 30 years earlier. And so, yes. One for those spy fans. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think... Charles Cummings has written Cumming has written a lot of spy novels and he I think he's very popular and oh it also very handily gives you a list of characters. I always find that useful because I'm so hopeless at remembering <laughs> names. Now the next one is this is the only book that I brought that wasn't Mary Wesley, the yeah. Chamomile Lawn. Not the Chamomile Lawn, but the author of the Chamomile mm. Lawn. Mm-hmm. This is a sensible life. And of course she she died in the I think in the nineteen nineties. And so, so this is the, every other book I was I brought books that were quite reasonably recent. So mm the last 10 years essentially but this is an older book but I couldn't resist getting getting another Mary Wesley and it's one of those ones um, there's a young girl who's been neglected by her family and she's sent over to France to have a holiday with another family and they're, they're glamorous and exciting and she falls in love with them and becomes entangled in their lives and um, 
and then it spans 40 years from it starts in 1926 and they children are all about 10 or so or older and um, they're just in time to, to go to the Second World War. Oh, you're interested. Well, I love Mary Wesley. Yes, yeah, so, really so do I. I mean, she's such mm-hmm. a she's such a great writer, and she's written so many, mm. so many. Jumping the queue, the famous one, the Chamomile Lawn, Harnessing Peacocks, The Vacillations of Poppy Carew, not that sort of girl in Second Fiddle. She was a busy, 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 busy writer. Mm. Yeah, she's great. Oh yes, lovely. Now, I've got um, one by Douglas Kennedy. It's The Heat of Betrayal. For some reason, um, the, because of the, I think it's the typeface on it, I kept reading it as The Heart of Betrayal. Yeah, me but too. It's, mm. But it's The Heat. And it tells the story of um, a couple, Robin and Paul, and they've been married for three years, but and they're... They're no spring chickens, and they they both tell each other they're they're really lucky to have each other. And and he's an artist, but he's never really he's a good artist, but he's never really clicked. And so he just mm. bumbles a, along. And and she she's had a hard life, and um, and they're desperate to have a child. And um, they we it opens with them on holiday to go to Morocco. And they're, they're going to go to Morocco and have a lovely holiday and, and try for a child and everything looks good. But then Paul disappears. And and then she, Robin finds herself as the prime suspect. And so it's, it takes a nightmarish quality. And um, she, yeah, it's one of those thrillery things. And is, has her f- husband really disappeared? Is, or has he done it on, per- you know, is it... Is was he, he pushed or did he jump? Yes, and she she doesn't know, and she has to basically has to fight for her life essentially, and yeah, if you like, it's one of those thriller um sort of thriller suspense type novels, and um, so if you like people running around in the d- desert in <laughs> Morocco, <laughs> this is this is That's probably for you. for you. Now this actually is a. This isn't from the Regent Bookseller. I I brought it. Now the last time when I was by myself, I I took my took the books out to talk about. And as I was talking about them, I, I sort of you might have noticed if you listened um, that I was a bit um, disconcerted at one stage. It's because I thought I had an extra book. I don't what's what's gone wrong. And so anyway, I didn't talk about it. And when I got back to the library, I f- found in the bottom of my bag. I just hadn't reached in. Far enough, and it's Horse by Geraldine Brooks, who is an um, she's an Australian woman who's lived in America most of her working life, and she she was a journalist, and she's won the Booker, and this is a very interesting take on slavery and segregation, and it's through the lens of a horse, and so there's an amazing um, horse that's born during um, slave. Slavery in a Kentucky um, stable. Stables, yes, in 1850, and an enslaved groom named Jarrett and the Bay Forge forge a bond of understanding that will carry the horse to record-setting victories around the South. And um, so the horse is winning money 
even as the civil war is going on. And an itinerant young artist um, takes makes his name by painting the horse. And he takes up arms for the Union and reconnects with the stallion and his groom in a perilous night far from the glamour of any racetrack. And it's told in about three different time frames. And then you have New York City, 1994, and a gallery owner is who's best known for taking risks on edgy contemporary paintings, finds a 19th century equestrian oil painting of mysterious provenance. And then we go into the present, essentially, Washington in 2019, and a scientist in Smithsonian and Theo, um, an art historian, find themselves connected through their shared interest in the horse. She's studying the stallion's bones, for clues to his power and endurance, and he's uncovering the lost history of the unsung black horsemen who were critical to the, its racing success. And at the very end, she has um, an after thing where she, she, um, yes, she talks about the historical connections, and because this horse is real, and although she's actually. Um, taken I think two or three different black groomsmen and made them into this one character but um, yeah there was a guy Richard Ten Boak and he was a slave and he he was a race he trained up race horses and was very successful but he had to sort of work his way through the aftermath of um, the Civil War because when John Jim Crow came in, they although he'd been successful, he, he was pushed out because he was black. And um, and so there's all these different stories. And so she's using the story about the horse and then what happened with the painting to give you a viewpoint of, of slavery and... Um, and what happened after slavery supposedly ended. Well, that sounds like a great read and a, a really great premise too. Well done. I'm going to give your voice a wee bit of a, a rest before you get the next book and we'll go to a sting. Okay. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M dot org dot nz. Ready to go. Okay, the next one I have is The Wedding Party by Kathy Kelly, and this is actually... I have not heard her name in years. Well, she keeps writing. I... No, I'm not that keen on her style, and she doesn't seem to be that popular in my opinion, so I don't really buy her. But anyway, I, I tend to buy her at the Regent Book Sale. And this is actually a very recent one, and it's a story about a family of four daughters, and the the parents, um, I can't see their names, but anyway, the parents divorced about 20 years ago because the father was had a serious gambling problem and the mother finally couldn't take it and her children were all teenagers and they've they've all moved on since and um, have formed their own careers and stuff and seem to be doing well and then the parents reconnect and decide to remarry and so everybody's brought back for this for this wedding and it brings out a whole lot of um, skeletons in the closet and 
Yeah, she's dealing with a whole... I think she's been very influenced by Marion Key. She's dealing with quite um, troubling um, problems like um, domestic abuse, um, abortions, and also how Ireland has has changed and yet some of the old ways still stay. Mm. And so I think it's actually rather a good book. Now, I have a Peter James. I got three Peter James because for some reason we seem to have a lot of gaps in the earlier ones and um, so I've filled them, some of them. And this is Peter James, Not Dead Yet. And so it's book eight in the, in the um, what's his name? Roy Grace. Yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking, mm. I should remember this, but mm. no, Roy Grace, correct. Now it starts with um, there's this big high profile movie being shot in Brighton where Grace is um, based, and it's a story about George the Fourth and his wife um, Maria Herbert. Who um, and the movies, the person playing Maria is a, a rock superstar. Gilda, who was desperately taken seriously as an actor, and she has the stalker who is furious with her and wants and is planning to kill her, and Ooh. so yeah, so so you have all the all the ins and outs of stalkers. I mean, she doesn't just have one stalker; she is. I mean, I read the first three chapters, and she's got at least two stalkers. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, yes, the thrills of being famous, and so. For for Grace, the movie being made in Brighton is it's exciting for everybody else, but for him it's a pain because the police have got to um, organise security because it's not just the film, it's the fact that um, there's this mega star, um, rock star there, so people are camped out and it's just it makes life unbearable in a lot of ways. And then the threats start to happen. Now, I've got um, one by Linwood Barclay, Find You First. And it's a story about a tech billionaire who has more money than he can ever spend and everything he could dream of except he's just been diagnosed as having an incurable disease and he will probably die um, in the next couple of years. Now, the his... His doctor asks him if he has children, and he, and that's the question because he actually was a sperm donor earlier in his life, and so he he may have children, but they're not children he knows of. So he decides that he it's he should track them down to let them know of um, because there's a chance that they could have his genetic because it's a genetic um, mutation type disease. Yeah. So there's a chance that they could have that legacy, and so he thinks in fairness if they have the legacy of having the illness, they should have the legacy of having his money as well. So he starts to track them down but then something very odd happened that they seem to be being killed before he can get to them. A vicious killer is one step ahead of him and one by one people are vanishing but not just disappearing, every trace of them is wiped and so this, what, what's the killer why the killer yes, yes she wants it that one. yes she wants it and fair enough too now I've got a, a lovely little book The Little Italian Bakery by Valentina Sabini Sabini yes and the scent of lemon aniseed and honey will bring back the past so it's a s- story about 
a woman whose mother was a wonderful baker and they had a bakery together and the mother is in a coma and the bakery has failed because the daughter just doesn't have you know some people just have a, that knack the touch mm. and the mother has it and she thinks that she can pass the touch mm. onto her daughter but her daughter isn't interested and knows that she will never have the touch but her mother just won't let it go so with the mother in a coma the the bakery has failed and so she decides that she, and her, her mother was always very mysterious so she knows nothing about her past so she decides to go back to um, her mother's childhood home which is on an Italian island off um, Sardinia so so here we are, we're all primed, we're in a, a beautiful Italian um, island with bake and the recipes are interspined within the book. So I think there are lots of people who are going to love that. I don't know. No, she doesn't want to learn some Italian recipes. <laughs> now I've got a James Patterson, which oh, take it. is three short stories. It's um, The House Next Door about a married mother who um, becomes enthralled with her neighbour and a um, few tasks um, get her into a lot of trouble. The next one is The Killer's Wife. Um, Detective McGrath has six girls missing and he thinks the only way to get to find them is to get close to the suspect's wife. Maybe mm-hmm. too close. Mm-hmm. And then there's The Witness. And so there's a, a family's been forced into hiding because they've stumbled on a criminal plot, or so they think. But no one will answer their questions, and the terrifying truth may come out soon. I like short stories. I haven't read short stories for well, a long time. Well, I guess they're sort of long short stories. No- the novellas, Yes. Really. The novellas, yeah. No, lovely. Oh, well done. And I think that's us for the day. Well, it is. You did very well. Happy shopping, Christine. Well done, you. And until next time, everyone. Happy reading. Happy reading indeed. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.